If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Today's guest is Del Elgilby. Del's an eventing specialist. She's been riding, training and competing for over 40 years. You may have heard of her as the first reserve rider for the goal-winning Olympic team at Barcelona in 1992, but she's still out there. She's been the National Event Rider of the Year and still out there competing now. How are you today, Del? Well, thanks, Glenys, and yourself. <laughs> I'm great. Now that I'm talking to you and uh, things are going well, got our technology sorted, we're all good. Del, we normally start off with a favourite quote. Have you got one that you use either when you're teaching a lot or, you know, something that's inspired you? Probably something that might be tipped on my tomb head might be um, keep it sweet, keep it simple in training and coaching as a coach as well in lessons. Okay, now, the keep it sweet, keep it simple, did someone say that to you? Is that how you got to have it? Did you write, read it? How did you come across that quote? No, they didn't, Glenn. It's amazing over all the years, as you know yourself, on your journey in life, you you can learn so much by watching and listening and just observing life in general. And, and I think, particularly this era, anyhow, there's we're a little bit micro-controlled and we just, with modern technology, we just overanalyze things and I think it just gets a bit too technical and to me I just think get back to your basics and keep it sweet keep it simple and if your basics are there you've got that empire there that you can build on your foundation and Mm -hmm. if you ever have any issues well you can always come back to the basics and that's where I just find sometimes with the generation we're in at the moment they want to get there too quickly and uh, they miss all the uh, in-between bits and pieces yep yep Del, tell us about your earliest memories with horses or the first time, do you remember the first time you rode or what your earliest memories were? Oh, gosh, Glennis, that's um, <laughs> going back a little while. And But it's a deep spot in my heart and it never goes because I was born on a dairy farm up in South Gippsland at Puong in Victoria. And even before we had tractor and, and we had electricity put on, like I can remember, I was eight when we had the electricity put on and believe it or not, but before we had a tractor and... and the end of milking the cows, we had two old draft horses called Boxer and Rosie and Dad would feed the uh, hay out to the milking cows after milking and I would sit behind the collar of these two horses and Clyde's and, uh, and I just think it's something that's held very close to my heart and look, I may have been four or five at that stage, I'm not 100% sure but it's, even now I wish I had a, a Clyde cross or a Clyde in the back paddock just to go and pat to sort of reminisce over my childhood. They're sweet memories. That's that's really good. What about that? I mean, that's a long way then, going from riding the Clydes, riding Baxter and Rosie or Boxer and Rosie. What about, you know, to go on then and event and coach and have a career with horses? What sort of took you along that journey? It's a very interesting lifestyle and, and a path that I walked alone a lot 
by myself, Glenys, because mum and dad came from a dairy farm and there wasn't any finances to back that. So what happened was we were given a old stock pony and <laughs> and a lot of people will remember this because I still quote his name, Fluffy. And my God, he was a naughty little stock pony. But I rode him two years without a saddle because we just couldn't afford a saddle and I wouldn't change that over again if I had my time but uh, that's where it started with Fluffy the little grey pony which I'm sure every child had a naughty little grey pony of some description and I'd round up the cows on him in the morning and at night time and and after I'd done it at night time after school and feeding the little sooty cows well he was my pony to do what I wanted to do on him and it was the same on the weekends. And mum would cut me a lunch on the weekend and after I'd got the cows up in the morning, I'd be going all day in my little bop pop and lunch and oat bag sock over Fluffy's back and um, I'd jump some poor six-strand barbed wire fences from neighbours to neighbours and I would go exploring. And so long as I was home by four o'clock in the afternoon and round the cows up, Fluffy was mine for two days and uh, being a Saturday and Sunday. So that's another very memorable moment that stuck in my head. And even to this day, I quote Fluffy. <laughs> I just, if I don't know, if I might, might say to um, Vanessa, now, Fluffy might do this or Fluffy might do that. And I can see parents and students actually having a bit of a chuckle when I call their horses Fluffy. <laughs> now, that, the name Fluffy, you've got to tell me where that came from. Is it a name that you had when you, before he became yours, did you name him? Did he have a winter coat when you named him? Oh, he was just like a real fluff ball. And I, I think I may have got him in the winter time. And the dear gentleman that gave him to me gave me a rug as well, and a, an old winter rug. But you know what ponies are like, no doubt, Glenis, in the winter time, they're just a fuzz ball of fluff. And, uh, and they do the, the coat in the springtime, and there's just fluff everywhere. So it was a totally appropriate name for him. And it just suited him to a T. It really did. <laughs> okay, so riding fluffy. That's when you decided that you wanted to have a career with horses or what sort of skills do you think that you had or that people need to have to have a career with horses? Skills, character traits, anything at all like that? Look, I just think it's been a true labour of love that I've had with the horses and that's where it's got me to now as well, Glenys. And uh, there's just always been that deep passion there to be with the animals on the dairy farm. And I, I just had that contact with the horses, like a, a sixth sense, I think that's what you call it. And I just had a gift. I felt that I had a gift there and, and just to communicate with all the animals, but more so the horses, particularly like from the farm. And, you know, I just had a touch with them and, and I just, I think maybe just riding bareback and I just had this close connection with, and we'd do things that other people would look at me and, uh, and then I was lucky enough to go to a local pony club and they actually had horses that they would give you on the day to be able to ride. And I kind of got connected up with that. And then I was able to, I saved up enough money to buy one of those horses and doing jobs on the dairy farm. And I was able to save up enough money to buy one of the horses from the pony club. And uh, yeah, and it just sort of went from there. Mm, mm. You've had people help you along the way, you know, from the guy that gave you Fluffy to ride, you know, right through. And obviously your parents would have helped you a bit. Who else has influenced you and what, what have you learned from them? Well, when you say a lot of people helped me, they actually did it. Like financially, we could not afford anything. There was no lessons. Like to go to Pony Club, my nana actually financed that mm -hmm. because 
all the money at the dairy farm went back into the dairy farm. That was our livelihood. You know, and I've got four brothers and they're all older than I and, and I'm not a spoiled only daughter in family, far from it. So, you know, like I had to feed cows before I went to school and when I came home from school. So it was my outlet, really, to be with the animals and the horses. But once I got to Pony Club, that was my only tutoring over the head. And then I started working when I was 15 and I had to go and find a job. And that I did, I, I rode probably four years on a push bike to go to, to work. And uh, I was chief bottle washer and floor sweeper for the first 12 months in the laboratory at the local milk factory. And, and I became a, a milk, uh, you know, a laboratory assistant technician. And yeah, and I kind of worked my way up through that after 10 years getting my testers and graders certificate. And uh, I was riding horses kind of along that journey while I was working and, you know, and then I was old enough to buy a vehicle, which then I bought a float and then I was able to pay for lessons and it was very difficult in those days to find a good instructor and, and God bless her, Glenna Shanley was very instrumental in the early days at our pony club uh, who comes from South Gippsland as well and she's still alive and she's still very active and yeah, you know, Glennis has been, I don't know, like being a, a local person, I guess. You know, you'd always looked up to her and, yeah, but Pony Club was a major backbone for me as a young rider. So, yeah, I don't know, next question maybe. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about Boxer, Rosie and Fluffy. I want you to tell me about horses now who've, who've influenced yeah. you, who've helped you along the way. Well, I think because I started working at such an early age and I was able to save up enough money and when I had my car and float, and, you know, I was making my presence felt out of competitions, Glenis, but, you know, I was just rowing my own boat and doing my own thing. But mm. when I had enough money, there was a clinic over at Coldstream Way and Mrs. Doak, Fiona Doak, she had Tad Coffin come out from America. Okay. And at that stage, Tad was the youngest gold Olympic medalist, you know, for eventing in the world. Mm. And Tad came out and I was able to save up enough money to go to a couple of his clinics. And, uh, man, he's like, a lot of people wouldn't know who Tad Coffin is, but Tad's the younger version of what George Morris is in the show jumping world. He's very Mm. old Mm. school. He works a lot along the biomechanics. It would be nothing to have our first session with Tad where he'd pull a skeleton out of his suitcase and we'd work on the rider's position and the anatomy and how it works and everything. And I really enjoyed that side of it. And then, of course, I went to a clinic with Kristen Teese. And I, I think Kristen was from New Zealand. He was their dressage coach at the time. And this is probably going back in the late 70s or even possibly early 80s. And like Tad, for example, he would have riders in tears, grown-up riders in tears. They wouldn't come back for the next two-day clinics. But Kristen Teese, for example, he was more into the dressage and he worked along the biomechanics as well as feeling the hind legs and getting into working with the horse's anatomy and, and how you can influence the horse to work more naturally, working with its footfalls and feeling it. And to me, that was terribly instrumental in, in my training methods with you know, one horse with me on one horse. But then the more horses I started to ride and the more that naturally came to me, the horses just, they were just like butter in my hands. They just mm-hmm. were on the same page and we work in harmony and people would make quotes that you could make a horse bend, a clothes horse bend around your inside leg. And 
you know, it was just some of the comments like that that would come to me. It was a bit embarrassing, but <laughs> I was just so humble and I would just kind of laugh at it and just go, well, look, whatever. <laughs> you know, but, um, it was very um, flattering, it really was. But, mm. but there's also been a lot of other instrumental people, like Dr. Wolfgang Holtz, or he was, uh, I was when I was probably back in the late 80s, I had a horse called Jabberwocky, and he'd more or less just come back from the breakers, and, uh, and I got him up and going through to advanced eventing back in those days, and he was up to pure medium dressage as well. He ended up being on a dressage squad as well as one of the um, elite eventing squads. And we had Dr. Holtzel, Wolfgang Holtzel, and he was actually a dressage coach before, I think, Clemens Dirks took over from him. And I learned a lot from Holtzel as well. And being German, and he was on the old scale, which was similar to Dr. Reiner Klimke. He, he, Dr. Reiner Klimke as well, we don't need to do an introduction for him. And, mm. and now, of course, his daughter, Ingrid, well... She's just taken on and from her father, and uh, she's just so instrumental in training horses right across the board in all fields. And uh, we're lucky that Dr. Clint has left that legacy in his daughter where she's wanted to continue that on. And I love her style of training and riding. She's so passionate, which I hold so very close to my heart in training the horses, and that's something I really try to coach as well. Mm. I think sometimes what you've done, before, like where I am in life now, too many riders as coaches let their ego get in the way and uh, and they say, <clears throat> I, I, I have done this or whatever or produced this. But not about our journey when we're coaching. We just try to explain to whoever we're coaching or instructing that, you know, I believe this is the best way to do it because you're working with the mechanics of the horse, the biomechanics. And if that's consolidated time in and time out every time you ride the horse, like repetition, there's no reason why you and your horse cannot work on the same page and work in harmony and, and make progress. So, yeah, so I probably got off the track there a little bit. <laughs> Maybe a little bit off the track, but I think you talked a lot. You know, you sort of brought in a lot of other things as well. And it's like you're looking back and fondly remembering things. What do you think your proudest moment's been? Oh, yeah, there's been lots, Glenis. Like, you know, as you said, over four decades, when I look, you know, when you said that, I said, oh, my God, it's been that long. But there's been some tremendous highlights, and, um, and they're not necessarily on the centre stage. I don't need to go out competing to have a highlight in my life. Just to win my horse's trust in training, to me, it's one of the biggest highlights. Any trainer can be gifted from a horse or any animal for that matter. But look, I'd say as a competitor, I would have to say Gawler three-day event holds a very close place in my heart in South Australia, which is where they had the World Equestrian Games, I think, in the yes. mid-80s. And uh, late 1989, I rode a horse there called Frenzen, who was a warm-blood stallion. I didn't own him. I was riding him for some owners. And I had him as a novice horse and got him up to advanced. And that was his first ever three-day event, and to ever to do a first three-day event advanced, let alone a Gawler, which was enormous, which was so hilly. Mm, you know, mm. it was a big event, and he won the dressage, and he ended up coming second. You know, at, at that three-day event, and that was my first ever three-day event mm-hmm. at that level. You know, I'd taken Jabberwocky previously to Melbourne three-day event, but back in those days, it was novice. That was my first novice. That was my first three-day event ever. But going from Frenzen, the Warm Bloods Day in '89, Gawler, and then the following year in 1990, I had a horse coming through the ranks called Beta, and he went out and he won Gawler Advanced three-day event. So, mm-hmm. 
And that was after they had the week games there. So it was a big track. And it was well and truly equivalent to a four-star track this day and age, which needs no introduction in itself. Mm. Mm. But, you know, and then, of course, in 1990, I then went on to become the event rider of the year. On the, and the horse I rode beta, he became the event horse of the year. And which then I became selected on the elite squad. So then, you know, for, for the long list at that stage for the Olympic Games for Barcelona, which then went long list, short list, and then revised short list, which I then went, went to England back in 1992. And I spent 10 months over there and campaigning mm-hmm. that particular horse but at selected events so that he would peak at the right time for the Games. And I picked up another ride while I was over there, and ironically for an Australian person, I had two rides in England back in 1992 and they had a leaderboard over there as a top 100 riders and I don't think England needs to know introduction of how competitive they are and that's the place to be seen to be doing well and we were selecting our horses and rider combinations over in England anyways but I was lying 32nd on the uh, leaderboard over there with just two horses and Andrew Nicholson, he was leading it and um, like Andrew was probably short of a dozen horses riding advanced. So I think, um, you know, I've got a bit of a proud moment there for that one. (laughs) So you could say I was a well-campaigned international rider up against the most elite riders in the world because everybody went to England to get a bid for their own country because that was a place to be seen to be selected for your country. So I think that was a pretty ambitious, not ambitious, but a very high moment in my life as well. I think there's been lots of proud moments as you went through, you know, your relationship with Gawler, the horses that you had, the going to the UK, yep, and the reason that you went to the UK as well. I think that was really good. Exactly, Glennis, and, and, and look, I'd never been overseas before, and to think that I took my best friend overseas, um, and it was because of him, he took me overseas as well, and it was important to me. He was always at the forefront at all times and he had to be looked after and, and I wanted a horse in the head collar at the end of the day to bring home. To me, that was always a priority on my journey over there, apart from obviously trying to get to the games. I'd made a lot of personal and financial sacrifices in my life to try to represent my country, which fell very short of doing. But the journey on getting there, ever since I was eight, I think I was, I always wanted to represent my country. And I think it's thanks to Pony Club State Championships, which I was 19 at the time, I was in the winning composite team. But my score counted in that winning composite team of four, and I think I was bitten by the bug there. And look, I had a lot of exposure doing novelty riding at local rodeos, and I did the show riding bit and the show jumping bit and the dressage bit, but the eventing community is just a special family in itself and it's just a great family it really is because it's such a you're on a high one day and a low the next day and you can go from hero to zero in a matter of two or three phases and it's a great community it really is a great family yeah all right now talking about going from hero to zero what do you think's been your biggest challenge you've already talked about financial is that your biggest challenge i think my challenge yeah but my biggest hurdle was when I came home from the games because I put my whole life on hold to go to the games and it could be quite emotional I came home with a bit of a chip on my shoulder thinking that I was a bit of a failure to the ones that supported me the most 
But mum embraced me and she said, honey, you were for God's sake the reserve rider for the Olympic gold winning team. She said, we're so proud of you. doesn't matter whether it was the Olympic Games or whatever. She said, we're so proud of you and the journey you've taken and the sacrifices and yet made and putting your life on hold. She said, it takes a lot to do that. And she said, it's a big country, Australia. And she said, we are so proud of you. We really are. But Dad was never a part of the journey because he wasn't a great father. You know, he, he was just there in the background. But Mum just tried to support me as much as she could. And when I came home, I just, it was a dark place. I got into a really dark hole and I just mm-hmm. couldn't get out of it. You hear about elite sports people and they discipline themselves like swimmers or track and field runners and and at a young age in gymnasts and they have a burnout factor where us event riders, I strongly believe we get better as we get older but you look at those ones that have the burnout factor, they then get stuck, you know, alcohol takes them or drugs take them or they get into that dark spot Mm -hmm. and they really need to be managed when they come from that disciplined environment to all of a sudden they're out in the big world by themselves, so to speak. And more so the ones, the elite athletes that have that burnout factor because they're at a very tender age still, which I'm sure you understand what I'm talking about. But like I was 32, I think, or somewhere like that when I came home from the Games. And I really never had the people there that I needed that were there when I was going on that journey to get to the games and you know and you have a few celebrations and and all of a sudden you realize that there's no one there and and you sort of start to get into a deep dark hole and you just can't claw yourself out of it and and it's a very lonely spot and you sort of reach out and yeah it's either my case Glennis I don't know how you're going to put this but it was the alcohol and it started to take a grip in my life and we all love a drink let's face it but to me it just that was my friend because there was no one else there to... Mum was there, but, you know, she knew you know, I was drinking a bit too much. But anyway, one day happened after probably about 10 years and um, I just said, that's it, enough is enough. I'm not having another drink and I've never touched another drink since and it's been probably 14 years since I've touched a drink now. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that was the hole I was spiralling down into when I came home from the Games. Okay. Because people... Love it when you're on a journey on the way up, but when you're spiraling on the way down, unless you've really got that great ground crew there and those people supporting you around you on the ground, they just fall by the wayside. Mm, mm. So it was a deep, dark hole I was in for 10 years and I was still riding and I was teaching and a lot of people don't realise it, that where I went, but I was still riding and coaching and teaching, but not the Del Ogilvy that she is now. Mm-hmm. or when she was back in her high, you know, top of the game, so which I'm at the top of my game now. I'm riding the best I've ever ridden in my whole life. That's brilliant. It's brilliant to, yeah. to hear you now saying that after, um, you know, after the story you just told because I think that's it's a very frank and open and honest story and I think it just wakes people up. I mean, anyone else that never got to the Olympics, would be absolutely over the moon with what you'd achieved. But I've heard that it's a common problem. You know, you you go to the Olympics, you get on the team, you come second, you know, and that's because you didn't win, you know, whereas you're saying you you were there as first reserve for the goal-winning team but didn't quite make it to the team instead of looking. And I, th- I suppose it's how you look at it, isn't it? 
You know, some people would look at it and go, wow, I you know, made first reserve, but or I came second at the Olympics, still better than all the other people who didn't even qualify. But, yeah, I think that's a, a very emotional and personal journey that you've just taken us on. So thank you for that. Oh, look, it's a pleasure. And if I can help anybody out that's been through that same situation, Glennis, I'd be, mm, mm. I, I open my arms and my heart and my soul to them to help them. But I think now what's happening that the Australian Olympic Committee, they and, and not just Australia but worldwide, are realising that there is actually a problem with those younger Olympians that when they do get there and come home and start another life, it's there are problems there and I think they're actually addressing it now where there's helplines or they're trying to manage them in a way or school them in a way and find, you know, put them either, I don't know where, but they, they try to, to help position them somewhere in life where they can adjust living in life and getting on with life with a job or whatever it might be or maybe doing administration in that field mm. but to give them mm. a much easier transition in life instead of just cutting off the cord and just say, sorry, you never made the games, get your own bloody horse home somehow, even though we've got three of them already based over here in England, you get your own horse home, you pay for that. And any vet bills you've got, you pay for them as well because you never got selected on the team. So they just drop you like a hot scone. Mm, mm. But that's not the case now. It's, it's a lot better looked after now and a lot better managed, although sometimes that can be questioned with where our money's going at times through our equestrian organisations and how it's distributed. So you don't want to start me on that one. But there's a lot more opportunities there now. It's not so much closed shop where... When I went to England, like people wouldn't say, oh, you can come and stay in our yard or we've got connections, you can go to that yard. It was all very hush-hush because it just wasn't easy to break in over to England to get into a yard. Mm-hmm. Um, there was less Australians over there and like Andrew Hoy was based with Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips, so yeah, he had a base there. But yeah, as much as you admire Andrew, but he's not, not going to open his front door to you because he, it wasn't his own front door. So. Mm-hmm. And that's where now you've got the likes of Sam Griffiths and, and, you know, and God bless Sam, you know, he's taken some of the young Australian riders under their wings and like Chris Burton started off there. Well, now Chris is over there. He's got a yard of his own. So hopefully now he can do, and if he's not already doing it, do what Sam did to him and give us young Australian riders opportunities that they would never maybe ever have in their life. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. because the way I look at it, Glenn, is, is that we've paved my personal and financial sacrifices that I've made and even Olympians before me have paved a much softer journey for the younger generation coming through now where it's a easier transition for them to go overseas. I think most definitely there. I think that as we progress through, I think the even the transition, the moving into the yards, but just the whole transportation, you know, everything becomes yes. easier as, as the world gets smaller. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And let's hope with what you've said as well that if anyone else is in that boat or, you know, thinking along those lines that, you know, maybe they can just jump on the phone and give you a call and say that, can I have a quick chat to you? Yep. Yep. I would be more, look, I'm not going to lecture anybody because nobody's perfect and nobody's an expert and I think it's always good to keep a very open mind in life in general. You know, we're human beings. We're not animals where you hit them on the side of the road and leave them for dead. You would never do that to an animal, let alone a human being, which you see people doing this day and age. But you'd like to think, stay humble, and too many people are driven by their egos, and you only get one go at this life. 
So have each other's back. Help each other out. Kindness doesn't cost anything. I'm only a phone call away to help anybody, and I will always say that to my clients in a lesson. If they have a problem at home, I'm only a phone call away. Mm. Give me a ring. Mm. I'll help you out. Yep. And that life in general should be like that. We only get one goal at it. It's very precious. Every day we wake up, it's a day above the ground. We should be grateful for that with open arms. Yep, yep. All right, just moving on to your own clients because apart from the problems that they might want to give you a call about, what about with their horse? What sort of common faults do you see when you're teaching? You know, you've got common faults that you see, you might even see them when you're out competing and not just what are the common faults, but how can you fix it? You know, the most common fault I really see, Glennis, and that is there's no set time in training your horse mm-hmm. to get to a certain place at a certain time. So, you know, to me, you're training at home. If you feel that your training at home is consolidated, then you want to take your horse out. And if your horse performs as well out as what it does at home, I think to me that's better than any bow or any center stage at all because the horse, it's the biggest compliment a horse can give you is trust. Mm-hmm. And if it stays with you at a competition, that's a compliment to you to put in your repertoire at home as a trainer. But to me, what I see at competitions is that people want to get there too soon. And I've always advocated this, to get a horse up to the elite level and to stay there for a period of time. It takes four years, I believe. I strongly believe in that, to get a horse up to four-star level or back in my days up to advanced level. And to me, the first 12 months, every horse deserves opportunities in life, whether it's going to be an elite horse or just a horse, a performance horse in general for somebody to go to pony club. But to me, the first 12 months at competitions is in eventing is to take your horse out. Don't put it under a lot of pressure. Let it go out and have fun. Does it drink? Does it eat? What's its poo like? Does it urinate? Is it cloudy or not? Is it socialising well or is it stressing in the yard? Is it relaxed in the dressage? How long does it take to warm up? Might have a weak link cross country, maybe over ditches. Take that home to the whiteboard and quietly work on it to strengthen it so that all the links of the chain become as strong as each other. And, you know, and then at the end of that 12 months, whether it be intro or preliminary in eventing, then that's your foundation. And that foundation is so terribly important because then you can build your empire on it. So if something goes wrong, you can always go back to your foundation and think, yeah, that was always my horse's weak link with ditches, for example. So maybe I need to revisit that page again in my early days of my training. But to me, I find this day and age, everybody's on a journey to want to get there yesterday. Enjoy the journey, enjoy the moment, embrace it, and just take a big deep breath and take a step back and just look at where you've come from three months ago. Look where your horse was three months ago and look where you're at now. And you'll probably think, Oh, yeah, I could never get my horse to canter on the correct leg three months ago. But now I'm trying to do some leg gearing. So that's a big step forward. Mm. So, Mm. you know, horses are like individuals. They are beings. And we need to treat them as an individual. Keep the horse's personality. Let Let it have a character. Let it grow within itself and become who it is. And then if you can do that, you'll find that your horse will bend over backwards and you will conquer. Yep. Whether it be a pony club event or dressage or just having a lovely ride up in the forest one day mm-hmm. and just enjoying each other's company. To me, that's what it's all about. But I think everybody's in too much of a hurry. But isn't that life in general this day and age? Don't you find that? 
I do find that, yeah, things move at a faster pace. You know, I mean, in the positive, you can get things done a lot quicker. You know, like I can call someone, I've missed the call, I send a quick email, I can get lots of things done, but it definitely that's a faster pace now than um, than what yeah. there was, you know, even, yeah. But in saying that as well, Glennis, mm. horses haven't changed. No, that's so exactly right. So we're breeding them better, mm-hmm. but the horse's mentality is the same mentality yep. as what it was centuries ago. Yep. So we're yep. just breeding a better performance horse now for whatever field we're wishing to go into. Yep. But the horse's state of mind, it's still the same state of mind. It hasn't got a mobile phone. Mm. Mm. It doesn't go reading books to advance its repertoire for flying changes. It mm. doesn't know. So that's why that's why I always quote, keep it sweet, keep it simple, because then our communication with the horse, if you keep it sweet and simple without overanalyzing it or getting too technical, You'll have a happier journey. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is in life, whether it be a car or whatever, something materialistic, you're always going to get a lemon. And, and horses, even though they're not, a, they're not a car, such, they're a being, you get the odd bad horse as well. But I find generally any bad horse within reason, it's the trainer. Mm. Because at the end of the day, the horse is only doing what it thinks is correct. So and I say this to when I'm teaching people, how the horse goes is a reflection of the rider. Whether it's luggage you've, you've bought on board because you've just purchased a horse, but if you've trained that horse and you've had it for the last three years, to me, that's a reflection of the rider. Now, if it goes well, it's a string to your bow. If it's not going that well after six or 12 months, I will say to people, well, have a look in the mirror. Is this not telling you something? Yep. You know, we haven't got a lot of time this day and age to be... We make time in our time of our day to ride our horses if you're working full-time. But if you're in that situation, you want to be able to think, um, I, I can't wait to get home and ride my horse, mm. whether you're mm. working 12-hour shift or whatever it might be. You want to feel that you want to go home and you can't wait to ride your horse. But to me, this is getting away from the track a little bit as well. I remember at a very, 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 very early age, an old horse breaker said to me, and he taught me to break horses in up at Puong, and he said, you know what, Missy, because I used to admire these beautiful horses that these kids used to have at Pony Club. They were really smart and really wow factor and that back in those days. And, and I used to admire them and I'd celebrate them now, just dreaming of having a beautiful horse like that. And, you know, the breaker would say, you know what, Missy? He said, the best pony you can have to ride. He said, it's not the most expensive pony, but the pony you can't wait to get home from school to ride. Mm. And you know what? That was that that little shitty pony called Fluffy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. I think what you said there, you know, is particularly about the first 12 months, I think it's very good for, well, not just young riders, but I think it's good advice for anyone and and anyone, you know, that's working with young horses. And when we're talking before about, you know, the world moving at a faster pace, I look forward to my, my two hours each day where I ride. You know, I ride, 
I go out, take a deep breath, I'll, you know, saddle, unsaddle, all of that stuff. It's all about, um, yeah, you, you can't usually get me on the phone and I don't answer my emails and everything. But that's just my time when, yeah, I suppose when life returns to normal, <laughs> to normal, to what it used to be. Yeah. Exactly right. And I think we just forget to stop the smell of daisies, as I say. Mm, mm. And I think also what you need to remember too, Glenn, is never make time your enemy. Mm, mm. If I haven't got time, I, I try to allow an hour to ride every horse mm. and I may in, in, only end up spending 45 minutes riding or 30 minutes riding it, depending on how young it is, how old it is, what part of its training it's at. But don't make speech your enemy. You, you need to embrace the moment mm. and feel that the horse is ready to step up to the next level of education or you think, look, you know what, this horse is not going to make top level, but, gee, he's going to make a cracker pony club for somebody. And that's a good trainer and coach that will say that. Mm. They won't be frightened to say that. Instead of trying to fleece somebody's pocket, thinking I just want them to keep coming back for lessons. My clients, I invest in my clients when I teach them. I really sincerely open my arms and tuck them under my wing. And I don't want to see and live and breathe and eat their journey as well. And and that's why I say they can ring me anytime they like after a lesson at home if they're having a problem. But to me, they're an investment. And I've got so many training tools and skills to pass on. And, and I'll say, I'll turn around and I'll say, you know what, Karen, I don't believe after, say, three months, I don't believe this horse is going to suit you, sweetheart, for what you want to do. Yep. So let's stop wasting my time, your money, I believe we can sell this horse on as a great pony club horse and we can. there's plenty more fish in the ocean and I just don't think that you and the horse are compatible for what you wish to do and get enjoyment from. Enjoyment. Yep. That's important. Yep, yep. Just like you explained. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The enjoyment I get, I just think if people get that, maybe that's why the horse population is growing. Maybe that's why the industry is growing is because within this fast-paced world, we can still, you know, communicate with the horse, take that time out, slow down, breathe. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Glenis, like you, you're saying, you know, you spend two hours, you know, to have your ride or play pony. Well, that's what I do now, yep. you know. I used to do it all the time. Yep, yep. Yep. But what I always do is I make allowance for myself once a week to take my horse up to the Bunyip State Forest. Mm-hmm. And I might spend an hour and a half just depending on whether I'm doing fitness work or just it's Dell time riding my pony up yep. there. At this point of time, it's precious dreams. And it's so, you know, you can just go soul searching and watching Mother Nature, watching the goannas run up the tree and, mm. and seeing the echidnas and seeing the odd horrible snake and the <laughs> wallabies and the kangaroos and the odd deer. Mm. I love it. Mm. Getting mm. back to touching with earth. Mm. And I think a lot of people forget to connect with earth at times, to connect with the soil and mother nature. Yep, yep. All right, just moving on now, Del, have you got a book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners? I have a, a, a couple of well, books, um, DVDs now, that, uh, they call yep. them. Do people yep. actually still read books today? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> yep. Look, I love Ingrid Klimke's DVDs that she mm-hmm. has out. And uh, maybe it's because I, I just loved her father's work and his passion and how he worked and trained and worked with the horse's mind. I also love Kieran Kirkland's 
videos as well that came out years ago. That was the dressage one. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't say I've got a particular eventing book that I really resort to as my Bible. But to me, my Bible in dressage would be Dr. Wolfgang Holtz or, or Dr. Rainer Klumke. Mm-hmm. Okay, either of those. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. But what I like about them, Glenn, is as well, particular Wolfgang's book is that it's got, like a lot of the books, they'll, they'll tell you how to do this and do that and, and, and so on and so forth. But when things go wrong, they, they don't say how to manage it. Mm-hmm. But that's what I love about Dr. Wolfgang Holtz's book. I can't recall the, the title of it, but he'll say, look, this is what could go wrong in doing your half passes. So then you might want to step into a little bit of shoulder in again to rebalance the horse or whatever it might be and then proceed to go into your half pass. And you know, he'll give you some correctional tips, what could go wrong, and how to yep. correct it. And yep. Not just say, this is where you should be, this is what you should be doing now. And a lot of coaches can be like that too. They'll say, too much angle. Yep. Not enough angle, yep. and that's it. You're supposed yep. to have a crystal ball and fix it. Yeah, yeah. What's happened with coaches saying a little bit more inside leg to outside rein or too much angle? What about How about taking outside leg, outside rein, half off? Okay, okay. Because you're getting too much angle. Just yep. Situations like that. So, yeah. So talk, talking where, a bit more about how to fix it rather than just what to fix. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 yeah, like I'm a great believer in life. Don't fix something if it's not broken. Mm. And we all go on a journey where things start to spiral a bit downhill. So before it gets to that stage, if you're a decent coach and you're invested there for the right reason with your clients, you'll get onto that straight away and you'll say, nah, nip it in the bud. You've got too much angle there, Caroline. Mm. Yeah, and this mm. is how you stop that. Can you feel it? No, I can't, Sal. All right, let's come back to walk, Caroline, and do it at the walk. Can you feel that angle? Yeah. Well, that's too much angle, sweetheart. So to stop that angle, you'll need to half hold this outside leg, outside rein to prevent the angle coming too much. And then if you've not got enough angle, you need to use more of this leg to the outside rein to create more angle. Mm-hmm. So then you've got to explain to riders to bounce off, off your aids because, you know, the book will say more inside leg to outside rein. But what's the point in going inside leg to outside rein if your horse naturally falls out through the outside shoulder. So you know what I'm saying? Yep. You have to be very yep. open-minded and training the horses and, and work with the athlete you've got because mm-hmm. we've all got flaws. We've all got weaknesses. And like us human beings, I, I, when I went to school, I wrote left-handed and I still write left-handed. But do you think they would let me write left-handed when I went to school? No. They try to teach me right, uh, right-handed. So but this day and age, you accept people for what they are and who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, the world is very judgmental and we forget to say, gosh, you've done a great job. But what do they turn around and say? You could have done better, mm. but that's not the right attitude to have. But with horses, we try to make them even on both sides, whereas all us human beings are generally more one-sided than the other. But the horses, we try to train them to be equal on both sides to get a more supple horse. So... I don't know, why do we do that in animals and not, I, I don't know, we don't, why do we not do that, more importantly, with humans? Yeah, yeah, I think as riders, you know, maybe the focus should be on fixing mm. yourself up and then uh, worrying about your horse, but yeah. make, making sure you're, you're straight and you're correct first. Yes, mm. I totally agree with that. And when something goes wrong with the horse, who does the rider blame? The horse. Mm-hmm. And what I will say at clinics is I will say, all right, Philip, What's the biggest issue you have at this point of time training your horse? If you could change something with your horse in training, what would it be? Oh, he hangs on to the left rein, something shocking. 
All right. Mm. And then I'll say, Philip, as a rider, if you had a magic wand, what would you fix up as a rider? Oh, my left hand, something shocking, Phil. <laughs> it's funny that your horse has got the left rein and it hangs onto the left rein. So you know what I'm saying here is that generally you'll find a, a horse's issue is a rider issue. Yep, yep, yep. But as I said, no one's perfect in the world. Oh, we can all, all move on and we can all learn, and I think that's a big thing. Yes. Del, can you sum up your philosophy into a lesson today? My philosophy is I like to work on basics. Uh, again, keep it sweet and simple. I'm not out to do fancy tricks to impress people. And it's interesting, Glenn, is because I've had people that I've taught many, many, many years ago and their children come back to me for lessons. <laughs> So I think that says a lot in itself, doesn't mm, it? Mm, for sure. I think if you're upfront and you're truthful and honest but humble and you don't have an ego and if your client can generally see that you're interested in what they do and you want to help them on their journey instead of talking about themselves as a coach, I think you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. And what I love about coaching is that I have such a wealth of knowledge and I believe I coach terribly well as if I'm feeling the horse. And I want to I want to coach that rider. I want to teach that rider as if I'm sitting on that horse. So when I see one of my clients sitting on a horse, I want that to be me. And if I see the horse doing something, this is how I would fix it. Yep. And that's something I try to teach as if I'm on the horse. That's me on the horse when I see my clients. And I want them to enjoy their horse as much as what I enjoy my horses. Is that, is that the right way, the philosophy of it all? Yeah, yeah, I think you've well explained that. No, it's good that you went back over the basics because you've really talked about that a couple of times, you know. I think you said earlier if you've got training issues, you go back, you go over your foundations, you know, and you've talked about your basics and your foundations a few times. And I, I also think, you know, you talked about being truthful and honest and humble. Yeah, I think that's important and that's come out through your interview as well. Mm. But I think then it's- you're a decent human being in life, that will just naturally happen. I, I don't have to work at that. I just, I thank my mother for that, bringing me up the way she did. But, you know, I just find that I'm not a coach that will sugarcoat things and just say, that looks great, but think, really? Is that the best you can do? So <laughs> I'm black and white. You either love the way I coach or you don't mm-hmm. because I'm not a sugarcoater. I'm not interested in you coming back just sort of for the sake of me getting some money off you. Yep. But the thing is what I love, and as I've meant, you've mentioned, and it was good to hear you say it back to me, I've kept it simple and the basics, and that is if things go wrong with you, with your clients as their coach, all of a sudden, and I'll say I'm always one to say to my clients, look, it doesn't hurt to go and have lessons off somebody else because we've all got something to offer as a coach. Mm. But what I find amusing is that people will become what we call coach hoppers. And look, I can rock out a terrific accent of different countries, (laughs) but I won't charge any extra. But then you'll find that whoever you might have been teaching for a little while has gone to somebody that's got an accent because of the flavour of a month of just come over from Europe. But they probably cost an extra $70 a lesson on top of what I charge, plus you're getting 15 minutes less. Mm, (laughs) I mm, think that's mm. most amusing. Yep. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> just thought I'd handball that one across. <laughs> All right. Now, Dell, how can people contact you? Well, you can either contact me on my email, which is all one word, trotondell at hotmail.com. There's a Del Winogle equestrian page up on Facebook. 
or you can contact me on 0418592503. And on the Delwinogle Equestrian page, it, it'll have all those details there as well. Clinics that we run, lessons that I teach at home on our property, horses that I take in, re-educate or educate, full stop. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and look, I've had a lot of different horses that come to me over the years, Glenis, that I've re-educated. And nine times out of ten, I've always had problem horses. I've had to make do with what I've got. Yep. Because financially, we never used to be able to have... I couldn't afford to buy expensive horses. Mm-hmm. And I know there's other people that are going down that track as well that have been in the same boat. So I think it's just the way I talk to the horses and work with the horses. I've been able to get those difficult horses to work with me and understand how they are mentally. And I work with that horse's state of mind. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, not so much now, because I, I don't need this at my age, but nine, more often than not, the horses that come to me are problem horses. Mm-hmm. And they happily go out the front gate and owners are very happy. Horses are more importantly happy. And horse and rider are on the same page. That makes me happy. Mm. I think at the end of the day, well, I've done what I feel the best is what I can do at the time with that horse and rider combination and, and I feel happy with it and that makes me happy. Good, good. Okay, and I think those contact details also will be on our page, which will be horsechats.com slash Delwyn Ogilvy. All right, now. Beautiful. It's been very good talking to you today. You know, I've enjoyed your honesty. I think you've expanded a lot on the questions and given people a lot of information then to take away, and hopefully they'll learn from that. So thanks for talking to us and hope to talk to you again sometime soon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time as well, Glennis. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 